In the 1860s in Philadelphia, there was a stationery store that was operated by a man by the name of Samuel Upham. Upham was kind of a get-rich-quick kind of guy. He always had a scheme to try and make money. Several of these had failed. He went west and the gold rush in 1849 did not strike it rich. After not striking it rich, he saw a giant shipload of cucumbers and decided that the true way to get rich in gold was to invest in the pickle industry. Also did not get rich on pickles. Eventually made his way back to Philadelphia where he started a stationary shop. In the 1860s, the nation is engaged in the Civil War. And that's all the news in Philadelphia at that time is focused on the Civil War. And as a part of the Confederate states, as a part of operating as what they viewed as an independent country, they needed to develop their own currency. And so the Confederate states developed the Confederate currency, and they had all the different denominations that were depicting life in the South and the Confederacy. But all of the good printers were in the North. And so the Confederate money did not work very well. It smudged. It was printed on old newsprint. It was very easy to counterfeit. And so as news of the Confederate bills comes to the North, they printed in the newspaper, they had a picture of these Confederate bills. I mean, if you heard tomorrow that we were getting new currency, you'd probably want to look at it, see what it looks like. And that's what they wanted to do in Philadelphia. So this newspaper sells out very quickly. Everyone wants to see the currency. Well, then... Samuel Upham decides that, well, if everyone wants to see the currency, I'll just print some pictures of the currency so people can see that. And it becomes a souvenir. Well, shortly after, people realize, wait, this is really terrible money in the South. They can't detect counterfeit. And so Samuel Upham became a significant printer of illicit Confederate money to the extent that the Confederacy put out a bounty of $10,000 on his head if someone could get this guy and kill him so that he would stop producing so much currency. Because he would just keep printing money and printing money and printing money and he'd send it down south with smugglers. And it was actually him and one other person were creating so much money that it was absolutely destroying the economy of the Confederacy. See, we care about counterfeiting money because money is only as good as people believe that that money is. If you're a bit of a nerd, maybe you've been following the Bitcoin bubble in the past few weeks. Bitcoin, which a few years ago you could buy for like a few dollars per Bitcoin, is now worth $17,000. This is an incredibly volatile currency market. I have acquaintances who mined Bitcoin early on, and they would have hundreds that were worthless, basically, are now worth $17,000 a piece and can live pretty comfortably for the rest of their life on this. Because currency is based on the limitation and on the perception of the value. And so Samuel Upham became one of the greatest enemies of the Confederacy because he was a counterfeiter of money. We're concerned about that as a nation, so if you take out a dollar bill, there's all sorts of protections built into it. Because for something to be valuable, it must be protected. In our text this morning, Paul is going to warn Timothy about those who will counterfeit the gospel. 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 9. But understand this, in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, 
lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins, led astray by various passions, always learning, never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Counterfeiters take things of great value, corrupt them, and replace them with something that is worthless. And in this text, we see counterfeiters described. First of all, we see the character of these counterfeiters. What were they like? Verses 1 through 5 give us a long list of vices. These lists of vices come up throughout the New Testament. All the lists are different. They're not exhaustive lists. One thing I'd note about this list is that most of the sins we see in this list are more internal sins. They're sins of attitude more than sins of commission. It doesn't deal with sexual immorality like some of the lists in 1 Corinthians does or in other texts. It doesn't deal with the more obvious external sins. It focuses on internal issues. Lovers of self, lovers of money. These are attitudes of the heart. Proud, arrogant, again, abusive. That is a little bit more external, but still, even that translation, abusive, is a little speculative. There's not a lot of uses of this word, but they are those who speak harm to others. Disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. This list includes many characteristics of an attitude of self-centeredness. And so he's warning, he says, in the last days there are going to be times where life is difficult and you will find that people are like this. They have these characteristics of selfishness. And I think this list resonates with us because we live in a world where we see that. And so when we read this list, we think of all the other people in the world and how if you go, if you turn on the TV, you see this. If you turn on the news, you see these sort of attitudes. Yet, I think we're missing something subtle in this text if we think that. If we're thinking about the world around us when we look at this, we're missing something because look at the last characteristic of these people in the last days. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. So, we're dealing with people who actually have an appearance of godliness, an appearance of spirituality. This isn't talking about a secular world that's hostile to God. There are other places in the Bible that do talk about that, but this text here isn't talking about that. It's talking about people who claim to be following God, but in reality their heart attitudes are far from God. And to even support this idea further that it's talking about these attitudes within the church, these attitudes of people claiming to follow Christ, note what Paul tells Timothy to do with these people. He says, avoid them. Well, that's not what we're supposed to do with ungodly people in the world. We're not supposed to avoid ungodly people in the world. We are supposed to call to them. We are supposed to minister the gospel to them. 
1 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul is writing about the issue of church discipline in the church, he urges the church to get rid of this man who's committing sexual immorality. But then he says, you don't do that with the world. You don't avoid the sin of the world. You reach out to that. You rebuke it, but you rebuke it with a gospel focus. You welcome people to come into the church. So here, this long list of vices is not talking about secular culture around us. This isn't one of those passages where we as Christians just sit here and say, rah, 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 this is great that the world is so wicked and we know it and it's going to end and it's going to be bad. This is a text where we look at those who claim to be following Christ. We say, are people claiming to follow Christ living this life? They have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its true power. They claim Christ, but their hearts are far removed from Christ. These counterfeiters are within the church. These counterfeiters look attractive because we think that following after them might be following after God. They are false teachers claiming a gospel that is not the gospel of Christ, but it may resemble it. So what do these false teachers do? What are their actions? The actions of the counterfeiters are described in verses 6 through 7. Verse number 6. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning, never able to arrive at knowledge of the truth. So these men, these counterfeiters, their action, that what they do with their counterfeit gospel is they creep in and they capture. They're creeping in. They're like snakes. They're trying to get in. They're trying to sneak in. They might try and look like one thing when they're actually something else. It's like the old movie trope of the guy dressed up in the delivery uniform who breaks into a building to steal something. They look like one thing. They use a disguise to sneak into these households and capture these weak women. They sneak in and they grab them. There's very much an overtone of evil, of just kind of creepy guys in this text. These are people who are actively and intentionally seeking to corrupt the church. These are not people who are just confused about something and they need a little bit of correction. They need, hey, I think you're misunderstanding this. No, these are people who are actively engaged in the pursuit of corrupting the church. And based on the list of vices that we see in the first few verses, we'd say their intention is to build themselves up. How can they use the church as a means to glorify themselves? Their targets are weak women in the church. We should be careful not to overemphasize the sexual component of this, that these are women. This is not a text about women. It's a text about weak women. And in fact, if we're going to really sit on the weakness of the women here, we also have to sit on the fact that the teachers are all men. Right? And neither one of those, I think, is what's trying to be communicated in this text. We shouldn't overemphasize the femininity of these women. This is a very specific situation Timothy's dealing with. In this church, there was a group of weak women who had been corrupted by this man. The term weak women, it's not women, it's weak women. It's one word in the original language. It's a diminutive, they're little women, weak women, childish women. 
These are a specific type of woman rather than some characteristic of all women. In fact, we can look throughout the Bible and see many examples of women with great strength. This isn't saying that all women are weak and particularly susceptible to this. Whether it's Mary being one of the first witnesses of the resurrection, Deborah and Jael fighting against Sisera and Judges, Rahab risking her life for the sake of the conquering Israelites, and Jericho, Ruth who gives up everything to follow her mother-in-law back to Israel, Esther who risks her very life to go before King Ahasuerus and save her people. The Bible is filled with examples of strong women. This is not a text about gender relations. And I would urge us, even as we think about gender relations, when women are spoken of as weak in the Bible, it's generally referring to their physical stature, not the fact that women are some lesser creature who's super susceptible to wickedness. But they are weaker in stature. The character of these women could equally be present in men. A weakness, a susceptibility to be captured, a lightness in how they view the word of God. Men and women are definitely different from one another, but we should always remember we're more the same than we are different. Our common heritage as those who bear the image of God unites us more than our gender distinguishes us. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is poetry. This is repeating the same thing basically three times to really develop and emphasize it. Men and women are created in God's image. Genesis 2.23, Adam has seen all the animals. This is the account of the creation of women. He sees the animals and he notices something. This one has a mister and a missus. This one has a mister and a missus. This one has a mister and a missus. I don't. And Adam's response when God creates Eve out of his rib, he says, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So Adam, when he is encountered with Eve, his first response is, This one is like me. Not this one is different from me. This one is like me. So we ought not read into this text some great distinction that this is how we make sure our women don't get caught up into stuff. Because men, we are equally susceptible to get caught up into stuff. It might be different stuff. We might be weak in different ways. But certainly, our society more than proves that men can be corrupted. Men can be pulled away from the gospel just like women can be. This is not a text on gender relations. What is it about these women that makes them weak? First of all, they are burdened with sin. Certainly all of us are burdened with sin to some extent, right? All of us ought to feel that burden. Yet these women, as they are described here, these weak women, they are burdened with sins continuously. The word is this ongoing sense. They are always burdened with sins. They are presently burdened with sins. They don't get rid of them. They don't take care of them. They allow sin to exist continually in their life. They are overwhelmed by sin. It characterizes them. They are led astray by their passions. They lack the maturity to say no when they want to do something. Isn't that so much of what maturity is? It's learning that just because you want to do something doesn't mean you should do something. 
These women lack that maturity. If they want to do something, they'll do it. They're always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. They pursue teaching that suits their passions. They keep learning, but they never actually learn anything that matters. They never learn anything that's going to change their life. And because of their weakness, they are susceptible to these false teachers who come in. These counterfeiters come in, and they're able to sneak in, and they're able to capture these weak women. There are wicked people in the church who claim to follow Christ but are ungodly. Some of these wicked people even go so far as to take other people with them. They come in and they capture others. They suck them in to their wrong way of viewing God, their wrong way of living, and their selfishness. The burden here in this text is primarily focused on Timothy's relationship to this. How should Timothy deal with these wicked counterfeiters? But I think we would also do well to think, how should the congregation deal with these wicked counterfeiters? Are you the kind of person who could be characterized like these weak women? Are you someone who's constantly pursuing knowledge but never learning anything? Someone who's constantly burdened with sin? You're not getting free of that sin. It just becomes the present tense reality that you're constantly burdened with sin. Are you easily led astray by your passions? If that is the case, you are susceptible to being victim to counterfeiters like this. If you are not anchored on the truth of God's word, if you are not confidently and boldly following after him, you are the kind of person that these counterfeiters are looking for. So we ought not be like these weak women. We ought deal with our sin decisively, repent of it, turn from it. We ought be able to say no to our passions. If we cannot say no to our passions, we will often use the Bible to falsely justify our passions. Because we just don't want to say no, so we have to find a way to say yes and maybe not feel so guilty. We ought not be like these weak women. But most importantly, and the primary focus in this text, is how should Timothy deal with these false teachers? Say that Timothy has two responses. Number one, he ought to expect it. We see this in verse number one. But understand this. All right? So Paul says, Timothy, you need to know something. Understand it. Mark it down. Be aware this is going to be a problem. There are going to be people who are in the church. There are going to be people who claim to be godly, who say they are godly, but they are not godly. Inside, they are wicked. They're selfish. They're proud. They're arrogant. They love money. These people are going to be present in the church. So we, along with Timothy, ought come to a realization that that is the case. Sometimes as Christians, we are hopelessly optimistic. We think that if anyone claims the name of Christ, therefore, they get carte blanche. They must be good. And we show this by the books we read, by the radio programs we listen to, the people we follow after. Christians, we must have discernment. We must know the gospel well enough that we know when the gospel is being corrupted. We must have our minds fixed on Christ enough so that we know when there is a counterfeit. We know that someone is pulling us to follow something that is not truly what Christ has revealed. 
we should not be surprised that there are many who claim Christ but do not follow him at all. That's not surprising. We were told we ought to expect that to be the case. We were warned about this already. Timothy is warned, understand this, mark it down. This is reality. It might be nice to imagine that the church is just filled to the gills with great people who love Jesus and there's no error in it. But the simple fact of the matter is that's not what we're told to expect here. We ought to expect that there will be people claiming to follow Christ who are not actually following Christ. Therefore, we need to be on guard. We need to be mentally prepared to know that not everything we are fed is going to be good to eat. We need to know that we ought to be evaluating what's coming in through our eyes and our ears. We ought to be on guard. Now, I want to be cautious here because I think there's a tendency to overreact. I think some Christians make their life about finding the things that they disagree with instead of actually actively following Christ. These people who make their living finding heresy to complain about on the radio or on a blog or in a magazine. Sure, we should expect this, but we don't live for the heresy. We don't live hoping, man, here's this person who's faithfully taught the word their whole life, but they said this one thing and I disagree with them, therefore I'm going to wave the heresy flag and warn everyone about them. We ought be able to do this, know that there will be false teaching, but know that with gentleness, with graciousness, with optimism that the power of the Holy Spirit is great and that God is ultimately the one who will protect his church. So we have to hold this intention. We must be gentle. We ought to avoid needless controversy. We ought to be confident in the Spirit. Yet, we know that we must be on guard. Well, what do we do when we see this happen? Very simply, Paul says, avoid them. Avoid them. Very last three words of verse number five. Avoid such people. Do not let them be an influence on your life. Avoid them. Do not listen to them. They are dangerous. Now, this is also challenging. Much of Scripture gives us principles rather than black and white, clear, this is what we have to do. Much of Scripture just says, here is a principle. Now, apply that principle. This is one of those places. Because if you'll remember, just last week, verse number 25 of chapter 2, describing the Lord's servant. What does the Lord's servant do? Verse 24, actually. Patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to knowledge of the truth. So avoid. Well, what are we supposed to do here, right? And one verse he says correct, and another verse he says avoid. So which one am I supposed to do? You know, other times it seems like we should also be able to say, you know, we disagree, but this isn't a gospel issue. Romans chapter 14 deals with this. 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, dealing with meat offered to idols. All these texts give us examples of times where there's disagreement that we ought to forbear. We ought to just love our brother and deal with. How do we determine the difference? And that's hard. And I don't think we can solve it by making hard, fast rules that we can hang our hat on so we can always go through a flow chart and know what the right decision is. There's gray areas. We ought to be comfortable with those gray areas. There are times to avoid. There are times to forbear. 
It's very biblical to recognize that tension. Proverbs chapter 26, verses 4 and 5. These are the internet commenting verses in the Bible. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Literally, two verses right next to each other. Don't answer a fool according to his folly. Answer a fool according to his folly. The Bible is clear on not being clear on this. The Bible is clear that this is a tension we have to walk through. So how in the world are we supposed to answer that question? How in the world do we know if we're in verse number 4 of Proverbs 26 or if we're in verse number 5 of Proverbs 26? How in the world are we supposed to know if we are in 2 Timothy chapter 3 or 2 Timothy chapter 2? Which one is it? Well, like I said, I don't think there's a hard and fast rule. We have to live with wisdom. And here's what's great about living with wisdom. If there is a hard and fast rule that God has given us, if there was a nice, handy, illustrated flowchart that showed up in 2 Timothy, and we could just walk down it, where would our confidence be in dealing with these false teachers? Well, I followed the chart. Right? I knew the right things to do. I checked every box. Therefore, I handled it right. But the reality is the Christian life is one of faith. It's one of reliance on God. James tells us, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Yet sometimes, don't you feel like, God, couldn't you have just written the wisdom down? Like, couldn't you just give me the answer to this question really clearly in the Bible? Then I didn't even need to have to ask wisdom from you because you gave it to me already? Yet, don't you get the idea that maybe God doesn't want it to be that easy? He wants us to be dependent on him. He wants us to be asking him for wisdom. And it gets to the whole ministry of Jesus in the Gospels as he's dealing with the Pharisees. The Pharisees are black and white. Everything needs to be written down. Everything needs to be clear. We're not supposed to violate the Sabbath. Therefore, we need 450 rules that describe what violating the Sabbath is and is not. And so everything can be neatly and clearly categorized. I'm that kind of person. I like everything to be categorized. I like there to be a written policy. I like following rules. They make me feel safe and comfortable. But Jesus says, follow me, don't follow rules. He says, there's principles underlying this. There is a thought process that goes into this. We don't get from God clear, obvious instructions for every area of life. There are areas that are clear. The gospel is abundantly clear. But then God gives us the clarity of the gospel and says, now go live this out. But live it out by faith. You don't have all the answers. You need to trust me. You need to be obedient. So we must have wisdom to differentiate these things. We must be willing to gently confront. We must be willing to avoid. Both of those are options on the shelf. We must be conscious of our own heart and our own sinfulness. Very often we think that, well, whatever I think must be right. That must be the right way. This is what I really want to do, so it must be right. The Bible warns us that our heart is deceitful, that our heart is wicked. So we ought to come into this saying, God, I need your wisdom. I need your wisdom even more because I know I'm a sinner and I want to do the easier, more comfortable thing or the thing that I enjoy doing more. And so we are faced here with a need to rely on Christ. Avoid but sometimes gently 
confront. And when we get to that point, when we're wrestling through this, when we're wondering what to do, we can have a great deal of confidence still because God has already revealed to us what the end of these counterfeiters are. We find this in verses 8 and 9. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. So he gives an example of some people who were opposing Moses. Janus and Jambres. Now this is an interesting little vignette here because the Bible does not include outside of this passage the names Janus and Jambres. These are extra-biblical names, but ancient Jewish literature, which Paul would have been reading at the time, universally gives these names to the magicians who resist Moses. So Moses comes in and Moses is performing some miracles and these magicians come out and they can duplicate the miracles that Moses performs for a while. Eventually, they get to the point where Janus and Jambres can't do this anymore. And eventually, what happens is God reveals himself with absolute clarity to the nation of Egypt through the continually advancing plagues. Janus and Jambres are not able to replicate all that God does, but for a time, they look like they're actually servants of God because they're doing what God has told Moses to do. When Moses asked God, how do I know that it's you? God gives him signs. And these men do the exact same signs. So put yourself in Moses' shoes. You're saying, wait, so are these guys the good guys or the bad guys? Because God gave this to me, and now they're doing it. But ultimately, they are revealed to be frauds. In the same way, we can expect this to happen to those who claim to be following after God today, but actually are not. There is an end. They may be successful for a time. And as we look at the world around us, we could probably think of some very specific examples of people who are not preaching the gospel faithfully. They are preaching a kind of a self-focused, personal health and wealth sort of gospel, and they have growing and successful ministries. They're admired by people all over the world. They've got the TV shows. They've got the jets. They've got all this exciting stuff, and it looks like they're profiting. This verse says, watch out. This verse says that profit will only last for a time. These men will be revealed. They will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those men. So, as we deal with these false teachers, we can have confidence because we are certain of the end. And that's a recurring theme in the book of 2 Timothy. We have confidence concerning the end. Therefore, we can live faithfully in a hostile world. We have confidence about what God will do. Therefore, we can suffer well. Therefore, we can follow him. And in this scenario, we have people who look like they're godly, who look like they're successful, but we recognize that they are not following after Christ, and we can despair, we can fear but Paul says to Timothy, don't worry. The end is coming. It will be revealed. Notice our confidence is about the certainty of the end rather than more participation and meaningless controversy about the end. 
Okay, so I think that sometimes when we focus on the end times, sometimes when we focus on the end, we can actually enter into some of the problems that we've already been addressing about getting engaged in needless controversies about stuff we simply can't know. But Paul's focus is not the details of every chapter of the book of Revelation, which wasn't written when he was writing this anyway. Paul's focus was not on understanding all of the signs of the times, but simply saying, you know the end is coming. You know that Christ will be vindicated. So serve him with faithfulness, knowing that one day justice will pour down. You have confidence about the certainty of the end. And that enables us to protect the gospel of Christ. The gospel is valuable. Things that are valuable are worth protecting. Know that it will come under attack. Be prepared to gently correct. Be prepared to avoid. Be prepared to rebuke because the gospel will come under attack because it's valuable. It's worth preserving, though. And as we think about the gospel that we must defend, we come to the point in our service where we visually, physically remind ourselves of the gospel. Jesus first instituted the Lord's Supper the night that he was betrayed. And when he did so, he did so with these words in Luke 22. He says, For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So even as Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper for the first time, he institutes the Lord's Supper with a focus on the end. He says, Here it is. I'm not going to participate in this until I return again. When Paul, talking to the Corinthians, talks about the Lord's Supper, he says this, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's this reminder, Jesus is coming again. And here in this text, when Timothy is going to struggle against these false teachers, when he's going to feel discouraged because it seems like they're doing well, Paul says they won't get far. They will eventually be shown for what they are. The end is going to come. So now, as we seek to apply this today, as we seek to earnestly contend for the faith, as we seek to protect the gospel, to proclaim the gospel with clarity, to resist those who would corrupt the gospel, we do so with confidence, knowing that the end is certain. Today, we celebrate Christ's death by partaking of the body, and the blood as represented by the bread and the cup. Yet, we know what happened three days later. We know that life came from death. We know that on the cross of Christ, it was not merely Jesus that died, but death itself died when he was raised from the dead. And so, we can with confidence boldly defend the faith. We can boldly preach the gospel, even when it seems like those who oppose it profit. If we are not certain of and confident in the Lord's return, we will never be able to take the risks necessary to oppose the corruption of his gospel. If we're not confident that there is an end to this and the end is good, we will never be able to be faithful in proclaiming God's gospel. Because the opposition will be great. Opposition from the world 
Paul has addressed that earlier, dealing with the fact that he's in prison, opposition even from within the church, those who are seeking to use religion in order to advance their own agenda, advance their own priorities, build up themselves. We are never going to have the endurance and the boldness to be faithful if we are not confident that the one who began the work in us will be faithful to complete it. And so knowing this, God gave us a great gift. Jesus gave us a great gift whereby we remember him until he comes. So this morning, we partake of the Lord's Supper.